We started talking about doing craft shows a few weeks ago, and we talked about needing a point-of-sale system to process credit card transactions when somebody wants to buy something that you've made. And it's just kind of logical now that we start talking about pricing your work. Now, I know that this is a huge issue for a lot of people. If someone says they do not struggle with pricing their work, they're either an eccentric artist who is incredibly wealthy or starving, or they're just lying to you. I don't know. Everyone struggles with pricing their work. Hi, my name's Roger Kugler, and this is Working at Woodworking Podcast, episode number 28, How to Price Your Work. I have a feeling this is going to be rather long, so I'll probably break it again into a two-part episode because there's a lot of information out on the interwebs about how to price your work. Some of it's good, some of it's mm, not that helpful. And I'm going to add a couple things that a lot of those formulas totally leave out. I'm going to give you three different ways that you should be using to price your woodwork. Number one, Everyone does this. Everyone should do this. Time and materials. It's a real simple concept. You keep track of your time and keep track of your materials. Add those together. Boom. That's your price. That's the basic formula. Let's break this down a little bit. Your time. You need to keep track of every minute that you are working on a project. Just pretend that you're a lawyer and you're keeping track of literally every minute. When someone calls you up and you answer the phone, the clock is ticking. Because this is the evaluation stage. Do you want to do the job or not? And I'm not talking about, you know, 45 minutes here. Typically it's one or two minutes. But a lot of people just kind of throw this time away. Well, that's the cost of doing business. Well... Fine, as long as you're recovering that someplace else. I would have to say that most craftspeople give this away. They show up at someone's house. They look at the space that they need the bookcase installed in. They spend an hour or two designing the bookcase, the dimensions, the joinery, and maybe make a drawing for the customer, show it to the customer. They hem and haw, maybe make a couple changes. You do that. You give it back to them. Yes, this is wonderful. We'll take it. How soon can you build it? All that time's gone. You may have, you may have six hours on doing a bid for someone and they may not accept the bid. That can be a good thing or a bad thing. I'll try to circle back around to that. But if you have six hours in a job just doing design work, you should be compensated for that. The second thing you're going to spend time on is acquiring the materials. Now, if you're fortunate and you have your materials delivered to you, that is a huge bonus. If you're hopping in the old pickup truck and you're driving an hour and a half away to pick up your materials and an hour and a half back, that's cutting into your profit. I hope you are billing for that. Then it gets down to the actual build. 
And you should break all this out. How much time is it going to cost in milling? How much time are you going to spend in assembly, in finishing, packaging, delivery, and the install? Those should all be accounted for. If not, you're giving those away for free. And let's not forget the bookkeeping. If you have a system where you can pop out an invoice in 45 seconds, fantastic. But if you have to sit there and write up the invoice, maybe manually or on a word processor or something, you could easily spend 15 or 20 minutes doing that. Are you recovering that time? Have you factored that into the overall price? You can see where if you're building a hundred of something, most of those things either go away or are tremendously mitigated. If you designed a product 10 years ago and you're now producing number 1,374th product, well, your design expense is pretty much been taken care of. This is why one-off or custom work tends to be more expensive than something that has been repeated a hundred times. Most people will introduce the concept of overhead in your estimating billing function. Your overhead is how much money does it cost for you to turn on the lights in the morning. Now, if you're running a, a large company, a, you know, bigger business, you had employees, that would be maybe the rent or the mortgage that you're paying uh, on the building. It's definitely going to include your utilities. For most of us who are, you know, a one-man band, one-woman band, we probably don't have that. We're working out of our garage, maybe a nice workshop that we built in the uh, the backyard. So we're going to capture that number when we do our taxes by the percentage of our shop that's used for business purposes. Let's say you're using 26% of your home for the production of an income. So 26% of your mortgage is in essence your business mortgage. 26% of all your utilities are in essence your business utilities. And so you can figure this out and come up with a number that your business cost for all of those expenses, mortgage, rent, utilities, your cell phone. Another way of looking at this and what a lot of people will do is they look at comparative cost. How much would it cost you to go out and rent a space like what you have right now? That might be $500, that might be $1,000, $2,000, whatever. But that would also give you an idea of your overhead operating expense. Some people will do this to just kind of condition themselves, build this into the books, so to speak, with the idea that someday I want to move out of my two-car garage and actually rent someplace for 1600 a month. And so that's what I'm charging myself now and building that into my cost structure. Pretty smart idea. Overhead is also going to include the things specific to your business, your website, any advertising, your shop supplies. Shop supplies are things that sandpaper, oil, things that you need in your shop, but you don't specifically bill those 
to a particular customer. They're, they're consumables, uh, toilet paper, you know, that type of thing. And any subscriptions that you get, any education that you take, uh, travel, those are things that would fall into the overhead category. And once you do your taxes the first time, these numbers will become much more clear and you can get a, a pretty accurate idea of your overhead cost. So your daily overhead would be your total expenses for the year divided by the number of hours you work per year. That would give you a number. $23.47 is what it cost me every day to go into the shop and flip on the light switch. Now you notice that I said divided by the hours per year. Those are your hours that you are going to work. Now you might be an animal. You're working 12 hours a day, 6 days a week, 12 months out of the year, no, va no vacation. That's going to be a big number. Divide that into your total expenses. Or maybe you're saying, I don't want to work that hard. I'm doing this part-time, so I'm working like 20 hours a week, and I take a month off every year. So you take that number and divide that into your overhead, and you get your, your daily overhead expense. It's just a way of of compensating for those expenses in a way that can be recouped in your pricing structure. Also, if you have a lot of customers who are using a credit card to pay you, factor in those transaction fees that we talked about in the previous episodes. So when you take your hourly rate, what exactly is that? There's a couple ways of thinking about this. One is, how much would someone have to pay me to do this work? Now, I'm not talking about all the the business owner, managerial, um, office type work that you end up doing. I'm talking about out there in the shop making sawdust. If somebody were to walk through your doors and say, hey, you do really good work. I need someone like you in my shop. I want you to come to work for me. And I'm going to pay you $10 an hour. Well, <laughs> Most of us would probably laugh at that and throw the guy out. What if they offered $20 an hour, $25 an hour, $30 an hour, $40 an hour? Would you go to work for them? That's your hourly rate. The other way to look at this, how much would you have to spend to hire someone to do what you do out in the shop, making the sawdust, not doing all the business stuff. Could you hire someone for $20 an hour to do that? Maybe you'd have to pay $27.50 to get someone who has the skills that you have that could pr produce the work that you do. A uh, little secret here, you might be able to hire someone for less money that could outproduce you. It's a thing. It's just a thing I'm saying, you know. Okay, so when we take our hourly rate, what we want to make, what we want to pay ourselves, and we add our overhead rate per hour, we come up with our shop rate. And don't be surprised if that's a fairly large number. You add that together, oh my gosh, that's $65 an hour. Well, you're probably a little bit on the low side. What you might want to do is compare the shop rate to other people, 
if there's other cabinet makers in your area, see what their shop rate is. And other skilled craftspeople, what's your mechanic charging per hour? What's your plumber charging per hour? How about your electrician? Now, there's a little difference there because plumbers and electricians have to be certified, typically. And there is an element of risk involved in those professions that we typically don't experience in the woodworking industry. If an electrician screws up, he can burn your house down. If a plumber screws up, he can cause thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of damage. If we screw up, yeah, typically we have an unhappy customer, but no one's going to die, usually, hopefully. But that will give you an idea of what the going rate. If you are a skilled craftsperson and you have talent and you have experience, you should be well compensated for that. By all means, put yourself in that, that category. What are carpenters making in your area? So that is how you come up with your shop rate. That's how much money you get paid yourself. Now, the other half of time and material equation is the materials. There are several ways of calculating this depending on what you're making. If you're making something very small, let's say fishing lures, your materials may be insignificant. You might be able to scrounge materials, you know, cutoffs from a cabinet shop, from a barrel making facility, from a job site. It might not be that much. If you're building cabinets, materials are going to be a very large portion of your overall price. So we can break this out either by the board foot if we're dealing with hardwoods or by the square foot if we're dealing with sheet goods. Don't forget the fasteners. If you're building cabinets, you're probably going to use a lot of fasteners. Don't overlook that. Screws, glue, and oh my gosh, nails if anybody should do that today. That's another podcast. Hardware, hinges, knobs, drawer slides. You can rack up a lot of money just in the hardware. Finish. I think everyone overlooks finish, especially if you're not a professional refinisher. We just kind of throw finish on at the end to finish the project. But that can be a significant portion of your build time. So don't underestimate this. Keep notes. How long does it take you to finish a kitchen cabinet? How long does it take to finish the widgets that you make? What is the material cost of the finish that you're using? Packaging, shipping. If you're making something small that you're shipping, you know, just UPS, FedEx, Cardboard has gone up. Boxes are more expensive than probably ever before. Packing material has gone up. So you need to factor that in to your overall cost. And a lot of the delivery companies are tacking on a fuel surcharge. I remember they did that back in the the 90s and I think the early 2000s. So it's nothing new. It just kind of comes and goes. Well, it's come back again. And you have to factor in your waste. If you are making something that is three and seven-eighths inches wide out of hardwood, 
but all the boards that you can buy are six, six and a half, seven inches wide, you have a pretty large waste factor. And if you're using a program like the uh, cut list optimizer that we talked about in, well, probably a dozen episodes ago, you can go in and adjust that percentage of waste. Typically, I use around 20%, but on some projects, I'm going 30 or 40%. I may only be able to get one piece out of an entire board. Why? Well, it could be bad math, but more likely, it's grain selection. If you are building a credenza and you want this to look really, really nice, and you want matching grain, well, you may only get one really good piece out of that one board. So your waste could be 50, 60, 70%. And if you're just doing this on a board foot basis, you're going to probably lose your tail here. So really drill down into your waste ratio. If you're using sheet goods on this, The optimizing program is fantastic because it's not going to allow you to make the mistakes that you're probably going to make if you're just kind of eyeballing this on the workbench and decided to rip it this way instead of ripping it that way. Oh, shoot, if I'd have done it this way or if I would have changed my design by a half inch, I could have gotten two out of this one sheet of plywood instead of just one. So work on that. Pay attention to your waste. It can be a significant either profit loss or profit gain. And there's other factors. Everyone is unique. You may be paying for a storage facility where you're storing wood or other materials or tools or something like that. You're going to have to factor that in. Maybe there's handling. charges that you are incurring. Whatever the little externalities that's unique to your business, make sure that you're factoring those in. Okay, well, that pretty much wraps it up. There you go. That's how it's done. Thank you so much for listening. Yes, there is more. Here's where most of the YouTube videos and things stop. Time and material, boom, that's it. There's other factors at work here. If you're just doing time and material, chances are you're probably losing money because you're not factoring in everything that it takes to run your business. Have you accounted for tool depreciation? Your tools aren't going to last forever. Are you setting a little something back to replace tools, a tool fund, so to speak, maybe you need to tack one or two, five percent onto every job you do so that you have some money to buy replacement tools. Maybe you're looking at a large purchase of, you know, something like a CNC machine or, well, Festool tools. <laughs> so if you save a little bit of every invoice, well, it doesn't take very long for that fund to build up. Everyone should have a retained earnings fund. What the heck is retained earnings? This is the business savings account. In our personal lives, everyone should have a rainy day account or an emergency fund so that if you were to suddenly lose your job or 
the business closed down or I don't know, pandemic, that you have some money that you're sitting on in a savings account someplace that you can get this afternoon that could tie you over to keep you out of the, um, the, the soup line, so to speak. Your business should have something like that too. What if you had that really unfortunate accident that we talked about in the uh, safety podcast and you severely injured a body part and you can't go back to work? It's going to take three to six weeks of recovery. Do you have enough money in retained earnings or business savings that you can keep the light on in the shop. You can make the payments for your website. You can make the payments for any of those other little incidentals that you've picked up, like your your software monthly fees, your website fees, whatever you, you have going on. And what about profit? This is a business. In a capitalistic system, businesses exist to make a profit, not to just exist. So when we're calculating your shop rate, how much that was going to cost to hire someone to do your job, well, that was just your job. I mean, if you're happy making $20 an hour, good for you, but the business isn't making $20 an hour, just its its employee, its worker. So the business itself needs to make a profit. How do you do this? Well, your profit margin. This is just a percent that you are going to multiply on your time and material calculations. It depends on the business. That might be 10%. That might be 20%, 30%, 40%. So if you had money in a savings account or a an investment, would you be happy with a 3.6% return on your investment? Yeah, not excited. Certainly, especially with inflation factored in there. Would you be happy with a 9% return? Well, we're getting there. A 12% return. Well, that's pretty respectable. That's what the stock market has averaged since its inception. 20% return. Oh, now we're talking 30% return. Ooh, this is sounding really good. And you folks who are in business, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The business has to make money itself. And so that's what gets factored in. If you are doing a bookcase and they want it to look like this, they want it to fit right here, and you do all the calculations and the time and material, you estimate it's going to come in at $1,000. If you are operating on a 10% profit ratio, you're going to multiply that by 0.1. That's going to give you $100 profit. So you're going to actually give the customer a bid for $1,100. 20% profit ratio, the bid is going to be $1,200. That's how that works. And certainly, don't feel like you're ripping anyone off. You are running a business, not a charity. Now, you can do whatever you want to with your business, but this is how businesses work. They have to make a profit or they are no longer a business. And, oh, by the way, nonprofits, they have to make a profit or they're not in business. That's a real misnomer. So there, don't forget about your profit. You know, if the idea of making a profit is 
makes you feel weird, fine. Go work for someone else. Help them make their profit. Okay, so thank you so much for listening. That kind of wraps that up. And what? There's more? Oh, yes, there is a lot more. Now I want to go into an area that I hear very few people talking about. Just because you run the numbers, you use a formula, you multiply by 7, carry a 1, divide by 2, move the decimal place over to the right. That's not all there is in pricing your work. And this is where a lot of people really kind of screw up here. So for item number two, if you're keeping track, we need to talk about competition. That's right. The world is full of competition. And if you are making bookcases, you have a lot of competitors out there. There's a lot of people who make bookcases. And you need to be aware of them. So what is your competition doing? Let's stay with the bookcase thing. That person who called you up wants a bookcase that fits in this area right here, exactly. They can't find anything that will work here. They want something custom. Now, you can be darn sure they have looked. They have been to Ikea. They have been to Wayfair. They've probably visited a couple furniture stores. So they know what the competition looks like. You need to also. In fact, you'll probably get an email from someone. I am looking for something that looks like this, and I'll attach a photo to it. I found this on XYZ website, but it's not the right color. It's not the right size. I want something a little higher. Can you make this for me? Okay, we have a starting point. We have a starting point, but this can also lead us down a road we don't want to go on. If they're sending you a image from Pottery Barn, one of the very first things you need to establish is what is your budget? Because if you're competing against Pottery Barn or Ikea, you're going to lose. Remember that thing we talked earlier about the design and the acquisition and all those factors that come in here? Ikea and Pottery Barn doesn't have that because they're selling the 12th billionth, you know, bed frame. So that's not a factor. You're going to have to design the bed frame. You are going to have to factor that in. So if the customer is looking at this item and it's $800, take a real hard look at that. What's it made out of? If it's made out of particle board or something like that, chances are you can't buy the quality materials that you are accustomed using for what that retail price is. I have had to tell customers I cannot build that for that price. Well, why not? Well, I literally cannot buy the materials for what they're charging for the entire thing. They're using MDF or particle board. I refuse to do that. I'm just not building MDF furniture. Now, there's another way that this can go, too. You could have a customer talking to you about building an XYZ, and they've done some research, and you get real excited about the projects. You've always wanted to build one of these, and you run your numbers, you calculate it, and you come up with a number of $1,675. 
and you give it to the customer and they go, wow, um, I wasn't expecting that. Huh. Why is this so much less than what I've found online? What? Yeah, they've been looking around online and they're seeing these things run for three and four thousand dollars. And they were very much willing to pay that. But you come in with a low ball of sixteen seventy five, and they are incredibly suspicious. Is this guy building it out of MDF? What's going on here? You didn't do your homework. You didn't check what they checked. And don't be afraid to ask customers, what have you seen? What have you been looking at? And they want to work with you. And so work with them. You'll probably only make that mistake once. So that's why you have to absolutely know what your competition is out there. And it's not so much that you are competing against, you know, that company, but your customer is looking at that company and looking at you. So you need to know what the playing field looks like here. Oh, and there's one other way that you can come up with prices, come up with estimates. And it's kind of a quick and dirty way. You'll see this in, in cabinet makers. They'll sell by the linear foot. You know, my cabinets are $150 a lineal foot. And that's just a kind of a quick and dirty way of separating your work from someone who's charging $90 a lineal foot. The other way is to calculate your, your material cost. A lot of carpenters will do this. If I'm building a deck and I have $1,000 in materials, I want 2000 in labor. So the total cost would be 3000 or I want or I'm going to take my material cost and multiply by 4. That's going to be the retail cost. That would in essence give the carpenter $3000, you know, for for their labor and their profit and their overhead and so on and so forth. So you can use that depending on the product that you're doing. That could be a kind of a, a quick and dirty way of coming up with numbers. Something to think about. Okay, I think that's probably enough for today. Your heads may be swimming right now and we'll wrap it up for this week. So recommendation for this week, I don't have a specific one. Go to YouTube and just put in the search bar how to price my woodwork or how to price my craft items. You will find dozens and dozens and dozens. Some are good. Some are yeah, not so good. But take a look at them. Missed jobs this week? Oh, there's been, there's been several. Um, the latest one was a lady who is redoing her kitchen cabinets herself. Good for her. But she wants to remove the panels out of some of the cabinet doors and replace that with glass. I'm full up right now. I can't really do that. I did kind of talk her through how she might be able to do it. So I told her if nothing else, if you screw it up, you know, bring them to me and I'll, I'll see what I can do for you. So the work's out there. You just have to kind of throw your shingle out and, and start doing the work. As always, thank you for tuning in today. If you want more information about this or other subjects in your journey at 
Working at Woodworking. Check out the webpage, workingatwoodworking.com, for contact information, a complete list of episode topics, and the show notes. Until next week, happy woodworking.